0: Great afternoon. You are in the fast lane with Sarah Jane and I am back in the fast lane today with Joshua Shea. He and I spoke roughly a month ago about pornography addiction and he is back with me today because we're going to dive a little bit deeper into it. So welcome back, Joshua.
1: Thank you very much for having me again.
0: Yes. So first of all, let's make sure that everyone, if you haven't listened to the podcast episode, please go back and do so because we get some background. Um, on you and uh, what your purpose now in your mission is, which is uh, amazing what you're doing. But we're talking to an expert. This guy's an expert. He's done over 250 podcasts on this topic. He counsels people. He coaches people. This is his life. So if you have an issue with this in your life with someone you love or even yourself, please reach out to him. He is more than available and he is a really nice guy. So first of all, Let's talk about the difference between porn addiction and sex addiction. There's a difference. People think it's the same.
1: Well, there is. And sex addiction has become one of those catch-all terms. If I could run the DSM or if I could decide how to do this, I think uh, I would follow the model of how drug addiction is. Uh, where you have drug addiction as an umbrella, much like you have, I think you should have sex addiction as an umbrella. And under sex addiction as an umbrella, what you need to have is intercourse addiction, which I think a lot of people use interchangeably with sex addiction. Uh, But people also, you know, when, when they talk about porn, they say sex addiction. Or when I say sex addiction, I know a lot of people think that it means physical cheating, which I actually never did in my entire marriage. I never went that way. And if you examine people and you look at studies with people who are, uh intercourse addicts versus porn addicts they come up very very different um so i would like to see the term you know kind of change to intercourse addict uh and then you have porn addict and then what you, you also have a couple other uh little facets of this um such as exhibitionism hey kitty uh such as exhibitionism and uh also voyeurism um which are considered uh, uh, sex addictions as well. My time at my rehab uh, in Texas, one of the roommates I had while I was there was a fairly well-known former NBA star. And he was, uh, he retired about a year or two before I got there. Um, But he didn't really retire on his own. Uh, He had been caught outside of the team's training facilities um, masturbating in his vehicle a couple times and he could not stop it. It was a compulsion. He had no urge towards pornography. He had no urge towards sleeping around with people. He had this just urge to be in public masturbating in his vehicle. And that is a sex addiction, but you say that this this NBA star has a sex addiction, you immediately think that he's sleeping with 101 women every day. Um, so I would like to see some clarity on that. I think sex addiction should be a category And I think that the individual types of sex addiction, much like, you know, opiate addict or benzos addict, um, should the the way that it's handled with drugs, um, I think that would make things a lot clearer for everybody because right now, sex and intercourse are basically synonymous and uh, it doesn't take into account those of us who have or had other kinds of, of sexual addictions
0: what exactly do you think puts someone at risk for becoming addicted to porn specifically
1: uh The best study that I ever saw was one of the first on this by Dr. Patrick Carnes. He was kind of the first guy, even before the internet started taking off, to say, hey, this is something over here. We need to study this. Um, And he did a massive study, kind of the first legit one on this. He found that just over 70% of men um, who developed a pornography addiction experienced physical abuse early in life. Just over 80% experienced sexual abuse at some point early in their life. And over 90% suffered from either mental or emotional abuse early in their life. So if you take a look at this, you know you are talking very high double digits when it comes to people who are men, specifically with this uh, study, who developed pornography addiction we're dealing with unresolved trauma from abuse that happened earlier in the life and this is earlier in life. And this is why I always say addiction is not the main problem. Addiction is always the biggest red flag when it comes to identifying another problem. And that problem is almost always going to be trauma. And now that we're starting to study other groups, you know, women, uh, different uh, religions, kind of finding the same thing throughout when you look at something like alcoholism and I was also an alcoholic as I mentioned on your previous show uh, that you're looking at that group being somewhere between 65 and 70 percent dealing with trauma from abuse as as a kid Uh, with pornography it's up around 90 percent and I can't tell you who that 10% is who haven't dealt with it because every single person I've ever been in rehab with been in a uh, group with interviewed has always had some kind of trauma that wasn't resolved and that's why the addiction uh, developed or, or they were just they were just looking for a coping mechanism in the moment and they stumbled upon pornography and, and and it did the trick like it did for me.
0: So why do you think that a lot of people think this is more of a male issue than female? Because we, we spoke earlier, uh, and maybe it was off camera, I'm not even sure, but we spoke about how this is also affecting women. But a lot of times when people think about a porn addiction, sex addiction, any type of intercourse addiction, a lot of times it is primarily male. Why is that?
1: I think that's a lot of how society has been. Um, I think that we... Uh, Still have a lot of our puritanical stereotypes when it comes to men's roles and women's roles. Um, I think that that plays into part of it with everybody except the youngest generation um, that kind of grew up on the Internet. You also have to remember that for decades, back to when stag films were first made in the 1950s, straight up through the early 90s, uh, before the Internet took over, pornography was expensive to produce it was like producing a real movie you you know if you were if you owned a studio you had to hire all the camera people and technical people and actors and you had to make the production then you had to edit it down then you had to distribute it then it was a matter of collecting the receipts and it was a major deal to get a pornographic movie to the masses well now You know, you and I in Craigslist and an iPhone can have a porno movie up, uh, you know, fully edited, you know, and done by 9 p.m. tonight, making money for us, you know, on all these different sites that host content. It's Mm -hmm. not hard to put out the content these days. It's very inexpensive to put out the content these days. So instead of just shooting for that white male straight audience that the porn producers could trust would show up in the 70s and 80s, You, they can now create different niches. You can go after the female audience. You can go after the African-American audience. You can go after the religious audience or, or, or people who are into certain fetishes, for instance. You can still make money as a producer doing very narrow casted films for a very specific audience because it just doesn't cost as much as it used to. So I think that's what a lot of it was. It, the entire porn industry was geared toward the straight white male for so many decades. Um, and I think that's why a lot of us associate it with men versus women. But when you look at statistics and at least th- these are pre pandemic statistics, cause really not much new has come out in the last year. Um, straight white males, while they still uh, tend to have some of the highest overall numbers of pornography addiction, you are seeing these other uh, demographics actually have bigger rep- or reporting bigger uh, jumps in addiction and their addiction percentage rates are growing much faster because this is something we have you know exhausted ourselves studying this with with straight white guys. Mm-hmm. You know what turns out, Black guys like to have sex too and look at porn and white women like to have sex and look at porn and Catholics and Jewish people and Mormons. And it turns out everybody likes to look at sex. Everybody likes to, you know, everybody has this curiosity towards it. I think that's a very natural thing. You know, I, I tell people, and I think I said this on your last episode, that I am not necessarily anti-porn because I think that is a foolish, foolish game to play. Uh, We learned 100 years ago that you can be anti-alcohol, but... That's just not going to work in society. And you consider how much society has evolved in a hundred years; uh, it, it it would be a waste of energy to try to be anti pornography, especially since none of the arguments that have been around for the last thirty years have really clicked with anybody. So I think it's much makes much more sense to be pro education and pro healthy sexuality. And for some people, that may be that may mean pornography is okay. You have to deal with it on your own, you know, personal, ethical, moral level. Mm -hmm. Uh, But if you can do that, I'm not going to judge you. And if you can use pornography um, that is legal and you can use it in a a, uh, educated, healthy way, I'm not going to be the one to stand in your way. Just like because I can't drink, I'm not going to tell you you can't go to the bar. Right.
0: When you... When you had your addiction, no one knew. You had your addiction before you got married. You had it while you were married. Um, And you also said that you were an alcoholic. Did your wife know you were an alcoholic?
1: Yes. And I think that actually helped hide everything else because Mm. so much energy, you know, my parents knew I was an alcoholic. I was very well known in my community. I owned uh, the regional magazine where we are. Mm. I started a large film festival. I was on our city council. Um, I was probably as close as you get to a local celebrity in central Maine. Um, People knew who I was. I think people knew that I had an issue with, with alcohol because, If I was at a networking event or something to that extent or at a, you know, awards dinner or something, I always had a drink in my hand. Odds are I had three or four drinks before I even got there. Um, A lot of the reason is because I'm not comfortable in those situations, but I can drink. I could drink myself into comfortability and I could drink myself into being charming. Mm -hmm. Um, but that was not my natural state. My natural state would have been being a wallflower. And for what I did, that just wasn't going to work. So I think people knew that I was a drinker, but it was, it's so much easier to hide porn addiction. Porn addiction doesn't smell. Porn addiction doesn't make you slur your words. Porn addiction doesn't make you stumble. Mm -hmm. Um, much easier to hide it.
0: So I'd like to know if there's certain ways that we can spot someone with a porn addiction, but you say that it is easy to hide. So Absolutely. are you, are, how does this work? Do people wait until the other, the other people in the household are in bed or I'm assuming this must not take a lot of time. How, how is it easy? How's it so easy to hide?
1: You know, I, I've, I've heard, uh, probably thousands of stories at this point it's funny saying that out loud because uh, I never thought I'd ever say that but I've probably heard thousands of stories at this point and it's easy to hide something when people aren't looking for it how often is your you know husband home alone how often are you home alone how you know and, and, well never
0: I feel like okay. I'm never without a child so um,
1: um, <laughs> but I get well, it I get it but 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 it's not hard to hide things i mean there sure. are pe- there, there are people who successfully hide affairs for years and years yeah. uh, when the, i think the biggest part is when you're not looking for something um it's it's even easier to hide and i i Began my addiction around 12 years old. I probably really entered it in earnest, 14, 15. Uh, by the time I met my wife when I was 26, I'd already figured how to hide it from my mother, how to hide it from my father. And this was hiding, you know, VHS tapes, this was hiding magazines. It is so easy to hide internet use of anything yeah. that it only got easier and easier. So as I became better at hiding things, it became even easier technologically. To hide things. So Mm -hmm. it it really wasn't a challenge. Now, there are guys who, you know, I have spoken with who would spend four or five, six hours a day looking at pornography. I was, I was never that guy. I just didn't have that kind of time. Mm -hmm. Um, but that's that's the life some guys lead. Mine was not nearly as much as them. But I think, you know, with the tandem of the alcohol, you know, there was workaholism there. I think I just had this stew of stuff going on inside of me. Um, that pornography met some certain the criterias that I needed for soothing, for, for coping. Um, it, it checked off the boxes, and I was okay with waiting until everybody was asleep or if it's a Saturday and they all decide to go, you know, down South to shop for a couple hours. Well, you know, I got a couple hours there. I mean, I can sit in front of the computer and watch it. I tried not to do it that much, but is it better to sit there for three hours and look at it or is it better to sit there three times a day for an hour and look at it? I don't know if there's any real difference, but Mm -hmm. it's, it's it's not high. It's not that hard to hide. And when it's the uh, when it's one of the driving factors in your decision making in life, when it's top of mind, it's much easier to plan your day around it. It's it's towards the end. Before I went and got help, um, I would you know my wife left early to go to her job, probably seven in the morning. I got my kids uh, off to school at eight in the morning. And I would go home because if I was in my office, I was having to answer questions, answer emails, answer phone calls. So I would work from home for the first maybe two hours of the day to make sure I got some stuff done after dropping the kids off. Right at the very end, before I hit rock bottom, those two hours at home, I was looking at pornography. But I was, and this is funny to say, I was disciplined enough that it was like, okay, I can... I have to you know take a shower before I get to work. I have to make sure I've got clothes. Uh, you know blah blah blah. so there's 20, 25 minutes. It's now this time. I have exactly 50 minutes while to look at porn. Hopefully it doesn't take that long uh, because you know you are ultimately looking for, Scratching that itch of your dopamine and serotonin and all those other happy chemicals. You know, you're just trying to get at those, and it's not always easy or it's not always simple with pornography. It's not a matter of, you know, your average guy who looks at it, you know, a couple times a month, maybe, maybe he only takes 10-15 minutes. But, you know, being an alcoholic, I had to drink far more than the average person to get that buzz and that high that I wanted. Mm -hmm. It's the same thing with pornography. It's the same thing with every addiction. You have to escalate the behavior to get the same kind of high you got in the beginning. And that's one of the big misnomers that non-addicts have, whether they're talking about drugs, food, gambling, sex, whatever it is, they think that addicts are trying to get that next great high. How can I get higher? How can I get higher? And the reality is, addicts are just trying to get that same high they got the first time. They just have to use so much more of their substance. So Mm -hmm. there were times that was, you know, absolutely frustrating where I have 45 minutes and 45 minutes doesn't do the trick. Uh, you talk to, a lot of men and women who are porn addicts and they talk about trying to find the perfect piece of pornography. And that's how 20 minutes becomes an hour. Mm-hmm. I talked to guys who have spent 10 hours on the computer, uh, trying to find that piece of pornography that they could get off to. And it didn't even matter what it was to them at that point. That's why I always say you are not the pornography you look at because most of us who descended to a pretty deep point of addiction, have looked at stuff that we would run away from in real life, but we're doing anything we can just to tweak the brain enough to, to, to get that. I don't want to even say orgasm because that puts it in a, in a physical sense to get that, to get that brain tickle that we're looking for. Um, And sometimes it doesn't happen. Wow.
0: And and that's probably naive on my part when I'm like, well, how can a person hide it? But you're right. Not everyone needs four or five hours for something like this. So well, it I mean, all depends here, on-
1: here's, here's the fact you and I right now could both not be wearing pants. How would the other one know? We can hide it in plain sight. And I probably could have been sitting next to you on the bus, looking at pornography and you would have no idea. That's what I was doing. Um, be, and I didn't really do that, but I know of a lot of people who, who did, who did, you know, engage in, in public, you know, I never looked at it at work because I was the boss and I, I, that was the, that would have been the worst thing to get caught looking at that stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, but you know, people, people need their fix. You so know, what that, are the that's, statistics that's
0: awesome. on this? How many, like in a hundred people would be, give me some numbers.
1: Uh, there really is to. I think the dividing line right now is those who were born uh, and don't know a world before the internet and those who remember a world before the internet. Uh, there's a group uh, called the Barna Group. They, did, they were commissioned to do a study for a Christian anti-porn group called Covenant Eyes out of Texas. Um, it, the report that they released and they interviewed thousands of guys, The thing that really jumped out to me and is still the scariest statistic, and this is pre pandemic, so I can only imagine where we are now, but 32 to of men under 30 that's men 18 to 30 years old 32 to 33 percent said that they either looked at too much pornography they were developing a problem with pornography or they had full-blown addiction to pornography now that is self-diagnosing but i I, i'm okay with self-diagnosing you know if you think you have something it doesn't matter if it's real or not if you think you do and, and especially with things like addiction or trauma, you know, the, the, these types of uh, maladies. Um, and I can only imagine if we don't start to deal with this one out of three men under 30 thinks they have an issue with pornography, you know, that's that's going to make the opiate crisis look like we're all addicted to Tic Tacs uh, if this keeps going. Because if you look at the statistics, uh, even before the internet was uh, prevalent, you saw upticks in, in addiction, you know. You look at the oldest generations, they did not have the access to pornography that my generation did. Mm -hmm. Well, my generation didn't have the access to pornography that my kids' generations do. So you see a steady increase. Now, I don't know where technology or whatnot is going to take things next, but you factor in, now you're not talking just men. Now you're talking women. Now you're talking, you know, every type of demographic possible. You know, we could be in a Very unhealthy sexual place as a society 20, 30 years from now. Now, overall, uh, most statistics say that the prevalence of porn addiction through all ages, uh, all uh, genders, races, demographic uh, types is between 12 and 18 percent, depending on how you exactly define uh, addiction and how you exactly define pornography.
0: So it's kind of hard to wrap your mind around, around those numbers. So, and when you are talking about the next generation, so I have a 10 year old and, you know, he's at home now and there's an iPad and obviously he could look up anything he would want. How are we protecting and educating our children on these? Because I have, I have,
1: we're not, we're not, that's the problem.
0: And I have friends who will tell me that, you know, they, They try to have these conversations and they do. It's not that they're trying. They do have these conversations with their children, but I'm, but it's uncharted territory. What do we need to do? Help, help us moms. Well,
1: if, if you, if you uh, were delivering a baby this week and asked me what to do, I would say around, I would say number one, never come up with uh, cutesy names for their body parts, you know, you don't have a hoo hoo, you have a vagina, you don't have a wee wee, you have a penis. So let's just talk, let, let's just start with that. Yes. If you refer to body parts, refer to them by the correct names. Um, and then when they're around four or five and you're starting to teach them things, I think it's okay to start to teach them some body autonomy, both for themselves and for other people. I think you can tell a four or five-year-old, hey, I just need to let you know that if you uh, you you don't ever want to let somebody take a picture of you without your clothes on, and I need you to also know that it's not okay to take pictures of other people without their clothes on. And if you if, if somebody shows you a picture or or you know you see a picture of somebody without their clothes on um just come let me know because i'd I'd like to know where you saw it and let it go because kids number one they don't know what pornography means and you don't they're not going to be shamed by the naked body at four or five years old it's not a taboo the way that you know it can become in society later on um and I think that's where you can leave it at this point. You're just telling the kid that pictures of naked people are something to be aware of. you know. And then when they start going to school, um, this is when you know I start to butt heads with some parents who are like, well, we've got filters on our kids' phones. And it's like, well, congratulations. Did you know there's 4.2 billion smartphones in the world and you have locked down one of them? You're doing a hell of a job. Um, the reality is, you know, what are you going to do when they're at the bus stop and their friend picks up the, you know, the greatest porn computer that's ever existed is the smartphone and we give them to every 10 and 11 year old kid out there. Um, and what happens when, sure, you've locked down all the stuff you don't want them to see on, on their phone but their friend shows them. Uh, Parents need, you need to recognize as a parent of a 10-year-old that it's not a matter of if, it's a matter of when. So I don't think that it's too, and, and for most boys, they see porn for the first time around nine or 10 now, and most girls see porn for the first time around 11 or 12. So this is the point where I think you have to introduce the actual term pornography. And you can say, this is pictures of adults You know, in situations that are very private, some people like to look at this stuff. Uh, Most people don't, um, although that's changing. Uh, Most people don't look at this stuff. Some people do like to look at this stuff. But just like I don't want you to drink any beer or I don't want you to smoke cigarettes, uh, I really don't want you to look at this stuff. Uh, While you're here, because scientists are learning that this can be harmful if you look at it enough. And some people can look at it a little bit and it's harmful. Some people can look at it a lot and it's harmful. And it has sometimes the same harmful effects as beer or cigarettes or drugs. So when you grow up, you can decide for yourself if you wanna look at it. You can decide for yourself if you wanna smoke. When you're an adult, I can't tell you what to do, but while you're here living with me, um, we have made the healthy decision in this house to not look at this stuff or to and to not smoke and, and whatever. And, and it kind of puts it in perspective of other things that maybe aren't mm-hmm. so scary. Mm-hmm. And then when you get to 13, 14, they're entering puberty They probably have classmates who are looking at pornography daily. It's probably becoming a more common uh, topic of conversation among them. I think that is when you can start to unload some of the uh, statistics, or you can start to explain. Now, I think if you explain to 13 and 14 year old boys, um, and and maybe even girls, but 13 and 14 year old boys about porn induced erectile dysfunction, we might see some of these statistics go down. Um, it, it's known as PIED, and it's hitting uh, men in their late teens and twenties like nothing before. And it, it's very similar to you know traditional uh, erectile dysfunction, but the the uh, person who has it can still climax if pornography is on or playing. They can't climax with a with a real human. Uh, you know they can't have sex like a normal person. But if pornography is playing, that's the only way that they can tap into that pleasure center in their mind that then speaks to their nether regions. And they can uh, be part of the uh, you know the sex act. Uh, one of the very first people I ever counseled on this, and you know, his, I, I always use the name Brian, which is fake. Uh, he was 22 years old. He was one of my first clients two years ago, and he had porn-induced erectile dysfunction. He had a uh, girlfriend cute, funny girl. She was like two years younger than him. She was a nursing student. So she understood addiction. So she didn't shame him about it. She didn't make him feel bad. But whenever they wanted to have sex, they would have to bring a laptop into the room. They would have to have pornography playing if he was going to finish the act. So eventually, she figured out that because she was reading about what's what's known as the Coolidge effect. um, She figured out That if she was in one room of their apartment and he was in the other, and they were essentially having a sexting session over their laptops, that he could get aroused with her because he was viewing it on a screen. He was able to go around the circuits in his brain that, oh, this is just, and I use the name Whitney for her. This is this is. Not just, you know, not just Whitney, who I can't perform with. This is a porn star because I'm seeing somebody do sexual things on a screen. And they did And you know, when he was close to climaxing, he would get in here, get in here. And they would finish up, you know, like normal people. And... You know, I, I I worked with them for about eight months. He was starting to get better with this. I haven't actually talked to them in about a year, so I'm not sure where things stand. Uh, but one of the things that really got to her, and I'll never remember, I'll never forget her saying this, is that you know I love this guy. I know he's got a problem. I know where it came from. Um, you know, I I don't you know he's he's uh, he's not a bad person because of it. But, but if we ever wanted to have a baby, pornography would have to be playing in the room. And it's like, wow, that's not something you share with your kids that, you know, the only reason they're here is because we had to have pornography playing because you couldn't have been created otherwise. And these are the kinds of stories that just fly under the radar. And I think if we tell our 13 and 14 year olds these stories, that could have an impact because a thirteen or fourteen year old boy, even if they're looking at a lot of pornography, probably are not a full on addict yet, and they probably want a girlfriend. In you know, mm-hmm. if, if if everything's heteronormative, they probably want a girlfriend. I know when I was thirteen or fourteen, I did, even though I looked at porn every day. I wanted you know, even at that age to have sex with a girl in real life. And I think that if somebody would have told me about porn induced erectile dysfunction and has said, you look at too much of this stuff. And essentially by 18 or 19, your penis can break. That might've scared me. And that might've, that might've been what I needed to hear. I don't know, but that might've been what I needed to hear, you know, because, a lot of girls are not going to be with a guy who does not function normally sexually. That's just off the table. Um, Mm -hmm. Right or wrong, it's off the table. So if you put yourself into this situation and all you really want is to have a real girlfriend and to have a physical relationship, yeah, you might take the porn because that's all you can get right now, but there are repercussions down the road. So don't you know, don't do too much of this now, don't do any if you can help it, Mm -hmm. because we do know that there are negative things to come in some cases. And I wouldn't want to roll the dice as a 14 year old boy and, and hope that, you know, my my genitals didn't essentially stop working within the next five years. I think that's a story that, you know, frankly, every 15 year old in a health class should hear. Mm -hmm. uh, Because that's what's possible with this. But just so many people don't even know it's harmful, much less how it's harmful. And parents are in that group. And I think it's a constant, uh, not constant, but several times in their development, you need to bring up you know, the the behaviors around pornography, you need to, you know, make your stance on pornography known. When you have young kids, you can see they are like sponges, they want to know the right thing to do. Mm -hmm. They want to satisfy you most of the time with their behavior. You know, they, they are into learning. Um, And uh, they need to um, have somebody who can set things straight. Otherwise their friends will set things straight. Society will set things straight and it might not reflect your values. And even if your kid uh, you know, doesn't get into this kind of stuff, it's imp- still have the knowledge.
0: All right, so my last question then for you. Um, so I have three boys. And as they've been little, you know, when, when they're little and you get changed and people walk in, it's really not a problem. Okay. But now I got a 10 and a seven year old, the three-year-old, obviously I don't, I'm not really concerned about, but so we're a very open family and I'm not saying like we're walking around naked type family, but let's say I'm in the shower and someone comes in. Okay. And I have, I, this has happened several times because Obviously they need a their dad could be on the couch, but they need something from me when you know at that moment.
1: That's great to be a dad in that situation.
0: Right. And probably (laughs) any situations, but I will just go ask your mother. (laughs) Well, that's probably what he does. Good good point. (laughs) And so when they come in, I don't make a huge production. Like I'm not like, oh, get out of here. Because I don't want it to make it like you're not supposed to. This is bad, you know. So I'll just turn maybe they're going to see my butt, but a butt is a butt is a butt. Okay. In, in my world, it's just a butt. So, but I usually turn and I'll be like, could you just wait until I'm out of the shower? Just give me a little bit of time. Or if I'm in the bathroom getting changed and someone walks in, I'll just turn and I'll be like, just give me a minute. I'm going to get some clothes on and I'll come out. I, I don't try to normalize being naked, but I also don't want to make it seem like, Oh, you can't see this. I don't know I've, I've not been in this situation am i doing the right thing am, am i should i just immediately be like get out of here what do you do i, I,
1: I if i could tell you i'd be a millionaire um i i would i i think that it's one of these things that you know your kids best you know what you're comfortable with best Um, And I think that the most important thing is that they clearly understand your boundaries. They clearly understand your family's boundaries. Now, if it's okay for you to walk around in your underwear in your house, great. If it's okay for you to walk around naked in your house, that's fine too. I would just say things. I would just, yeah, the body's nothing to be, you know, uh, ashamed of. And we all have them. And it, it, interestingly enough, one of the things that I kind of had to uh, normalize in my head when it came to getting over pornography addiction was the reality that, you know what? We're all naked under these clothes. And if I, see this actress or I, you know, the pretty girl on the beach or something, what happens if I see her without her clothes on? Well, I'm going to see a butt and I'm going to see boobs and I'm going to see a vagina and I'm going to see elbows and knees and, and every other part because that's what we have. And, and, and kind of uh, almost normalizing it in my head that it's, it's, it's not, I don't need to put nudity on a pedestal. And I think that's really what the important thing is, is that you don't put nudity on a pedestal because at least I think for our, our generation growing up, and maybe it's not the same for, for 10 or 12 year olds, I don't know. But I think that we so interchangeably saw nudity and sexual behavior um, or nudity and sexuality. And you know, the reality is the breasts exist to feed, children they don't exist as a object of titillation i mean my 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 cat has six nipples why is that not three times sexier um and, and it probably is for some people but um
0: that's a whole other topic
1: right exactly that, that that'll, that'll be my third visit to the show um and uh, i think that uh, i think that uh i don't know if the term is normalizing necessarily but I think having them understand your boundaries and understand, you know, why they're there. You know, it's not appropriate to be in the bathroom when I'm taking a shower because that's my private time while I'm cleaning. And I don't like to clean myself in front of people. Hmm. You know, I would, rather, I would rather you walk on me showering, I'm fully naked, than you walk on me sitting on the toilet and you can't see a single thing. To me, that that other one's a much bigger, more personal, more intimate thing than just seeing my naked body. That's where my head is at. Somebody else may be like, come on in the bathroom if they're sitting on the toilet, yet they would freak out if they were in the shower. So it does come down to individual individual pieces, um, I think it's important not to shame. It's important not to judge. It's important that they understand boundaries. You know, you don't go running into traffic because traffic can kill you. There's a boundary you have here. You know, you don't start swearing at your teacher when she does something or he does something you don't like, because that's not how we treat teachers. That's a boundary. And I think that if you can frame it in the term, uh, in terms of this is just another boundary it's 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 not going to be that big a deal and perhaps when they start you know developing sexually you know they'll they'll have other questions they'll have other interests but i think that you know when they're younger teaching those, you know, when you're, when you're washing yourself, that's a private activity unless you're at the gym or at the, at the pool or one of these things, then men, men will shower with men and women Mm -hmm. will shower with women because a big place like that needs to have a lot of people showering at one time, but it's not a big deal. And, you know, let, let it go with that.
0: Well, I appreciate your knowledge and your information and hopefully I mean, I got something out of this on how to talk to my kids cool. and I have a 10 year old, like I said, so I do need to go home and I do need to have this discussion today because you know, he's at basketball camp or football camp or having a sleepover and you don't know when this is going to come up. So I'm going to go have that conversation today and hopefully, um, the listeners will, um, also find some good little clinical, I'm going to say clinical pearls in, in what you have to say. So Thank you for everything that you do to try to help people. And if you or someone you know needs help, please reach out to Joshua because you, you're listening to him talk. He's a very down earth guy, very open about what he's been through and he wants to help. He's not here to shame or judge. He is here to help. And you also help victims. I, I don't want to say victims, but you help right. spouses whose, uh, whose spouse has been addicted. And we spoke on this, before about how they think it's their problem or their fault when it's not and you help them work through that as well so you are a multi-faceted guy so you can reach out to him at all of the um, I will list all of this contact information on the page
1: thank you so much for having me on today I appreciate it
0: Thanks for listening to the Fast Lane with Sarah Jane podcast. If you like what you hear, share the podcast and hit the subscribe button so you get updates on all new episodes. And we truly love feedback, so ratings and reviews are appreciated.